Good job, Chris. Uh, hey, this morning, as we stay in here, if you were here last week, you remember we turned to Proverbs chapter 3, and we looked upon just two verses, verses 5 and 6, and it told us not to lean upon our own understanding, but to simply trust in the Lord. And then Kimberly came up and gave us her testimony, a wonderful, beautiful testimony in which she shared with us pertaining to really the birth of Daniel and so all the different trials and tribulations she had during that particular time of her life. If you have not yet heard that testimony, it was recorded last week, so you can always go to our website and listen to it online. But today we leave the Proverbs and we go to the book preceding Proverbs to Psalms. We go to Psalms chapter 1, the very first, as we talk today about choices and decisions. And we get to think about the fact that choices and decisions, well, in everyone's life, is inevitable. And, and, and not only are they inevitable that there'll be choices and decisions that we will have to make, they seem to increase in number as we get older. Now, obviously, as a newborn, the decisions that a newborn, well, they don't really make choices and decisions. The parents typically make all the decisions and choices for someone as a newborn, and that typically also continues to be the way or certainly a trend through the toddler years, maybe even into pre-K. But at some point, as they get maybe into the school years and the school age, it seems to be that parents begin to allow the children to make some choices and some decisions. Now, they're rather simple enough, not complex by any means, but it might be something like when they get ready to go to a restaurant, maybe after the t-ball game or whatever, they may give the child a choice to make among which place to eat. They may give them some alternatives, like maybe to go to McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King, and say, which one would you like to go today, and let that child make the choice and the decision. Now, that seems to be something that happens for a while that actually begins to prepare that child for some decisions that they'll make later in life. As they get older, to the point where Ellie is graduating from school, Hopefully, they have made many decisions that can make the right choice and right decision throughout the rest of their adult life. So in a way, when the child begins to make those choices, really the parent is maybe preparing them for those really hard, tough choices that will later come in life. And we could say that preparation is actually leading the child as they grow older to recognize that there are two paths or there are two ways in life. Today, as we read Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist refers to these two ways of life. One commentator's research I had last week labeled that first psalm as the two ways. We kind of borrowed that heading for the title today. And he says that the psalm itself contrasts the two opposite directions that one's life may take. The one leading to blessing, the other to despair and ruin. So not only does this message pertain today to LA, she graduates school and for all of our future together, but really to every one of us today as we begin to examine our lives is the Psalms today speaking to us and is it indicative of the life in which we're leaving? Is it one that we're leading a blessed life or is it one that has gravitated into despair and ruin? That's the question we ask ourselves as we begin to read the psalm. Stand with me this morning 
if you're able to, as we look into the very beginning, there's 150 Psalms. We look at the very first one in the entire book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 1. It is six verses. It does say this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, Lord, we thank you today for this day you've given us. and We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that we have in our life. We pray today, Lord, as we read this word, that we ask for a blessing to be upon it. But, Lord, we pray that it will speak to us and let us clearly see before we leave here later that we need to be on that right path on the right way that leads truly to a blessing in life, leads to blessedness. So, Lord, we invite your spirit now to lead and to guide and direct us in our time of message here today as we examine your word. We pray, Lord, to speak directly to our hearts, that we understand this text now and see how it truly applies to our lives. I pray, Lord, for all of us to have blessings, not to be the way, the path of the wicked, for us to be the path of the godly and to receive the blessing you have waiting for. So thank you, Lord, for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we read the Psalms, again, the first one of 150 this morning, Worsby, in his commentary, states that the editor who placed this jewel at the beginning of the Psalms did a wise thing, for it points the way to blessing and warns about divine judgment. And when you really consider it, that is indeed the case. I mean, the psalm, as we begin to examine and explore these six verses in chapter 1, the psalm aptly states that we can have one or the other, but not both simultaneously. Meaning that we are either among the godly, receiving blessings from God as we live, or that we are living as the ungodly on a road leading to despair and to ruin. Now, as you consider that and contemplate Worsby's comment, it also points us to two things to mention at the onset of examining this psalm a little deeper. First, notice that there seems to be no author, when the authorship is at least not disclosed. Worsby, in his comment that you can still see behind me, simply referred to it as the editor. John Phillips, in his exposition of the Psalms, states that the Hebrew hymn book, which he refers to the Psalms, the Hebrew hymn book begins with two orphan psalms, that is, with two psalms, the authors of which are not given. Now, as we think about that and then now recognize that as we point that out, it really should make a big deal of the fact that the author is not known to us, except for to think about the fact that normally that is not the case. Normally, as you read through the 150 Psalms, the author seems to be revealed, as it is perhaps in Psalm chapter 3, when it says, it is a Psalm of David, 
when he fled from Absalom, his son. So a lot of times it leads us into understanding maybe what the context is about why the Psalms were written and maybe who the author is. But here it doesn't seem to be the case. So it leaves only maybe for us to conclude that it's God himself maybe as the author. And so then God states that there are men, again that term used kind of generically because it's men and women, that shall be blessed. And those who practice ungodliness shall not be blessed. That's the first observation to make, that there's no author. Second, though, is going back to the fact that it speaks of blessedness. That's the second notable feature, if you will, of this particular psalm. Observe how this very first psalm, the first of 150, the Hebrew hymn book, as Phillips referred to it, has this very first word to be blessed. And maybe perhaps you think that's no big deal. But Charles Spurgeon would disagree. He says, see how this book of Psalms opens with a benediction, as did the famous Sermon of Our Lord on the Mount. And of course, what Spurgeon's referring to is repetition that occurs in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, which is truly the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You see it with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger. And so forth, all the way down through verse 11, where that word blessed is used over and over repetitiously. Spurgeon makes a connection with the Beatitudes to the very first psalm of 150, speaking of the fact that here is the word blessed. And maybe you still think that's no big deal. But we observe it to make our first point which is this, that God just loves to bless his people. It's used over and over again in Scripture. God loves to bless his people. And when you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, just like any loving father, we love to bless those that are ours. As I look around the room, I see a lot of fathers. If Father's Day is coming up next sometime in June, I think it's the third weekend in June, and we have a lot of fathers here in the room. And speaking on behalf of all the fathers in here, a lot of us live to make sure that our children receive more than we do. We love for our children to have more and for them to be blessed. When my, parent, when my children were growing up, I lived so that they could have more blessings than I did as a child. But there's no doubt that my parents, my mom and dad, probably also lived the same way. They love to pass blessings on to myself my brother, and my sister. And now that my children are grown, I do the same thing now with my grandchildren. Some call it spoiling, but I differ. I view it as passing a blessing now on to my grandchildren. And why? Because as a father, we love to bless those that are ours. And so it is with God. God, as a loving and caring father, loves to bless his children. In fact, he offers and gives us multiple blessings in life, particularly and sometimes only to those who are obedient, which points us then back to verse 1. Notice verse 1 again says this. We've been examining it. Now let's dig a little deeper because it says, Blessed is the man or a woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
Now look closely at it and note then that the psalmist writes it in which there seems to be three conditions in which we shall receive a blessing. The first condition was not walks not in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. The second being nor sits or stands in the way of sinners. And the third then nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, as you see that, you're thinking, okay, there's the three conditions. I have some education. I can fully understand what he's referring to. Or you may be thinking, that needs a little bit of explanation. I mean, I'd like to have it just a little way paraphrased so I can understand better of what he's referring to, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What's that really meaning? So I began to consult the paraphrase called The Message by Eugene Peterson, and he has a bit of a comical, humorous, and witty way of expressing his conditions, which might make it easier for us to remember. When he says the condition walks not in the counsel of the wicked, Peterson words it this way for understanding. Don't hang out at sin saloon. When he says, nor stands in the way of sinners of being the second condition, Peterson words it this way, don't slink or don't walk along dead-end road. And when it says, nor seats in the seat of scoffers, Peterson words it more simply, more comical, don't go to smart mouth college. Now, I've I don't believe Quinn goes to Smart Mouth College. She goes to Franklin, right? And there's no Smart Mouthing happening there, is there? And where Ellie's going to go is also not going to be Smart Mouth College. But here's some conditions in which he lays out for us to recognize the things we should not be doing or should not be practicing in which for us to receive a blessing. But notice this. The paraphrased conditions for being a blessed man or a blessed woman implies that the blessedness that God is ready to give to us comes from the choices that we make. Like, are we making smart decisions, smart choices, by hanging out with the right group of people, our friends? Do we truly have the right group of friends we're hanging out with? It's also choices like, are we walking the path that leads us straight into trouble, into the ditch quite often? Or are we walking a different path away from trouble? Are we letting our mouth overload us and get us into trouble? Meaning, do we sometimes make these off-color, coarse jokes and comments? Or are we speaking words that would bring glory to God? Notice how it implies the blessing that we can receive, a choice that we're making, or maybe one that we're not. I mean, living a godly life and being blessed from the choices we're making, or living in a godly, wicked life that might seem to be leading to some temporary, albeit false, satisfaction, that ultimately leads to despair and ruin. Perhaps we could take these conditions and just summarize them into five words, which becomes our second point, to be separate from the world. Five words to maybe put all these conditions into how we should live, to be separate from the world. It almost seems too easy to be separate from the world. Referring back to John Phillips and his commentary exploring Psalms, 
He says, happy, happy is the man, again, woman, that avoids certain things in life, things which make it impossible for happiness to flourish because those certain things are poisons, destructive, or counterproductive. At this point, I think we have to consider that comment by Phillips and ask ourselves, how are we living? Are we having or currently maybe even have done things that are viewed as poisonous, things that are maybe completely destructive and certainly kind of productive? Because if any way we're doing those kind of things, we should abstain. We should practice not those things. Avoid these types of things. Simply be separate from the world. Now, we've got to kind of pause for a moment and have maybe just a quick time out because as you're following me, as I say to be separate from the world, I begin to realize as you sit there listening, you may be considering that, thinking, is he actually stating? There's a concern, there's a concern that creeps into my mind. Is he actually stating that we must completely alienate ourselves as Christians, as believers, as we begin to want to live a godly life? Is the pastor telling us that we got to completely divide ourselves, shut ourselves off from all the world, just completely alienate, not even associate with people in this world? Is that what he's saying by be separate from the world? Because if that's what we're starting to think and recognize, I'm not advocating that. We as Christians, we as believers, well, we're still sinners. And that should not then allow us to think of ourselves any better than any other particular group of people. And further, we cannot be divided amongst ourselves or the world. The main point we're making here when we say to be separate from the world is that referring to our actions and our attitude and our behavior. We have to associate with the world. We cannot divide ourselves and abstain from the world itself. To be separate from the world is not saying that we cannot and should not associate with it. I mean, there is nothing, listen, there is nothing wrong with being friendly with lost men and women. You're going to encounter them all throughout your entire life. There's nothing wrong with being friendly with lost men and women. Jesus was friendly with lost men and women. Jesus made friends with all kinds of people. As Ellie goes into college, she's going to be making friends with all kinds of people she may meet from wherever they may come. So there's nothing wrong with making friends with lost men and women. Jesus made friends with lost men and women. But he did so to lead them to a higher, holier way of life. And consider in Matthew chapter 9. That's when you find that Jesus called Matthew, also known as Levi, to be his disciple. Well, if you know about the situation with Matthew or Levi, you know of his occupation. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were the low people. They, they were viewed as complete thieves and sinners. So Jesus called a tax collector a sinner to the degree of Matthew to be one of his disciples. But upon becoming a disciple, Matthew, Levi, as he gave his life to Christ, what did he do? He invited all of his lost friends, tax collector buddies, to be with him. They had a dinner. They dined with Jesus. Jesus was with them and dined with them. 
which, by the way, triggered some hateful responses from the Pharisees. But the point is this. He did not, Jesus did not distinguish himself from the world. He did not alienate himself from the world. But we must view our conduct, our actions, our behavior. See, that must be noticeably different than those of the world. But then again, we must still engage the world in whatever capacity to bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. So although we are separate from the world, we still are involved and engaged with the world to bring them the good news of Christ. Is simply referring to our actions, behavior, and our attitude. Now go back to the text. That timeout is over. Notice we go back to verse 1, the verse we're examining. Note that we find here that some things are being told to us as we go back to examine it a little further of things we should not do. Verse 1 says, Seek not the counsel of the ungodly, which means then that we should be living as we are being directed by the word of God. The word of God is inerrant. It is infallible, meaning that it is unfailing. It is foolproof. It is completely and totally sufficient. The word of God directs the godly in life's decisions. So it becomes our source of truth in a world of untruth. The fact is this, that the Word of God directs us in everyday decisions if we allow it to. It's just that powerful. Which is why when Ellie begins to graduate high school like she's doing, we present her with a brand new Bible. One maybe a little further in what she maybe had a Bible, and now we give her a new one to consider to maybe help her make some great decisions as she gets into college. It's why we present someone going from one particular high school to college with a new Bible to help them make great, solid decisions, to help, encourage, through all the years they have in college. It's also similar, if you will, to how we give a brand new believer. A new believer will give them their Bible. Sometimes it's their very first Bible to help them understand this is the word, this is the truth that will guide you through, to give you the counsel you need, not from the ungodly, but to give the counsel from the word of God. I mean, it's also why we have children messages like Chris had today, Vacation Bible School. In any particular Bible study we have, it's also we stay engaged, to stay recognized, how we receive counsel from the Word of God. Seek not the counsel of the ungodly, but rather the wisdom from God in His Word. That's what the first verse is telling us. But verse 2 adds this that the blessed man, woman, they delight and meditate on the law day and night. Which simply means that a godly person, as we're wanting to live a godly life, a godly person looks forward to having alone time with their best friend. Who is their best friend? It is Jesus. They look forward to having that time where they can study the scriptures and reflect upon the word. They look forward to the fellowship time, whether it be in private or gathered together like we are right here, right now. You'd be wonderfully surprised how many times we have heard as adults, the Bible study leaders in the church have heard many different times how the children get so excited about a little message time, or how they get so excited about wanting to come back to church. My little grandson Jasper, 
he just can't stand not being in church. We leave here Wednesday night. We get in the car to take Jasper home. He says, Grandma, when are we going back to church? We're barely leaving. And he's ready to come back. Because they're learning. And they're hearing the word. They look forward to the time of being together in church. Daniel's exactly the same way. Most of the children Declan, they love being in church. They love the fellowship. They love to hear the word. We're teaching them and, and, they're, and they're learning. Verse 2, they delight and meditate on the law day and night. Verse 3, we transition to verse 3 rather quickly because the psalmist here describes the blessed man and woman. He says it is not like they are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he or she does, they prosper. Notice here as the psalmist engages a little further into the blessedness that we can receive, he uses a metaphor or an analogy. He used the tree. The tree is a familiar image in Scripture, symbolizing at times a kingdom or an individual, as is the case here. Similarly, water or a river in this particular case often symbolizes the Spirit of God or the Word. So what that means is then that a blessed man or a blessed woman, meditating upon the Word and abstaining from things of the world, is like a tree with deep roots that is constantly refreshed by the flowing of the water, His Word. And because of those deep roots receiving that cooling sensation of ever-flowing water, a tree, or the man-woman in this case, bears fruit in every season or daily. I mean, so much so is the tree, the man, the woman, happy and blessed by being in, in the word, that water ever-flowing, that their leaves with their lives never wither. They never shrivel, they never fall. The point is this. Trees may wither and die, but the believer who abides in Christ stays fresh, green, and fruitful. That applies to every one of us. The believer who abides and stays in Christ, in his word, meditating upon law, staying close to him, they stay fresh, green, and fruitful. And as the psalmist says, they prosper in all they do as in their multiple days in which they're receiving blessings. Multiple days in which they're receiving blessings. They're prospering. Now, maybe what you're thinking is this. I hear what you're saying. All right? I hear you saying that we need to be living a godly life in order to receive these blessings. I'm trying to live the best life I possibly can. I'm trying to live godly. Life does get in the way and things happen. True. But sometimes we don't recognize that day that we are blessed. We're looking for this grandiose blessing of something significant to happen. And sometimes that does occur. But we seem to miss that there are blessings that occur every day. We just get so used to them, we don't recognize it as a blessing. But a blessing can be just simply our first breath in the morning when we wake up. And for that matter, that blessing can be that first cup of coffee in the morning. Or a blessing, a blessing can just see, it's just a baby smile. 
When you heard Kimberly's testimony last week, I guarantee you she thought that was a blessing. When Daniel took his first breath, when she saw Daniel smile, when she saw the baby that was born with all the struggles she had, she truly recognized as a blessing. We get too used to it and don't view the blessing any longer. Children indeed are a blessing. Sometimes a blessing is just a warm place to lay your head at night. Sometimes a blessing is just a sensation that you can receive from a special phone call you receive from a friend at the precise moment. Those are blessings. Maybe not the big, grandiose blessing we're expecting, but they are blessings. And they reveal to us that a blessing is a gift from God that he gives to his children. It's a gift from God when we get these kind of blessings. All blessings are from God. But also recognize this, that God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. Which is what he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So yeah, we get all kinds of blessings of every kind in life. But notice then that we are to be a channel of God's blessing to other people. We should not keep a blessing selfishly to ourselves, but to also bless someone else in some way that maybe we were blessed. So then, the psalmist starts off with his psalm, the very beginning of 150, with Psalms 1, the entire book, with the message that a man and a woman shall be blessed all the days of their life. That's how he starts it off in the first three verses. We should abstain from the things of the world, be separate in our behavior and our actions, to receive the blessings. But notice a transition that begins to occur in the text. Verses 1 through 3 seem to be nice. But verses 4 through 6 is like where the rubber meets the road. And things begin to get more serious. Notice the contrast that occurs to those apart from the godly to the ungodly in verse 4. Where he says this. The wicked are not so. I said all that about the godly, but the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verses 4 through 6, these three verses send a message that basically the ungodly evil people will not, hear me, they will not receive the blessings that is typically received by the blessings of a godly person. It says it'll be like chaff which the wind blows away. Note how the ungodly, unsaved man and woman is at the mercy of multiple forces he cannot, she cannot control and cannot even see. Perhaps this person is relying upon their own senses, their own education to in life and life to sustain them. They never call upon the Lord, never opening his word, maybe don't even have the Bible, can't find it, shake the dust off of it, because they never refer to it, never use it. They never use the Bible for life's decisions. In short, the ungodly, wicked man and woman is the master of their own soul, the captain of their destiny. Consequently, although they do not know it, 
They are powerless and are driven like the chaff in the wind. They think they're in the driver's seat, but they are not. They're driven like the chaff in the wind because they're powerless. What is chaff? It's like that husk of corn or chopped hay or straw or the residue that you see. When you see a field of beans being combined, you see all this residue coming out. That's like chaff. It's worthless. Garbage. It's useless. It's without substance. Easily carried and blown away. That is the description of the wicked, ungodly, sinful man and woman. Notice verse 5 quickly adds the ungodly and sinful, as it says it, will not stand in a judgment. Which admittedly may seem a little confusing. I mean, judgment day is coming for each and every person. So one would think that if you're living this ungodly, ruthless, evil life, that they're certainly going to face some judgment. However, the text doesn't seem to word it that way. It says, they will not stand in the judgment. So a little clarification is necessary here. And first we must recognize that the distinction exists in the judgment that believers will face and the judgment that the lost, unrepentant sinner will face. For a believer, let's start there, for believers only, they shall face what is called the Bema seat, also known as the judgment seat of Christ. Paul referred to the upcoming day in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all, all, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. As he says the word all, it is for believers only. All believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now note as you examine that verse, it is not a day of judgment to see who will enter heaven. It is also not a day of punishment. It is a day in which we shall be, for believers only, occurring post-rapture for us to give a full account of what we've done in our life after we receive Christ. Our admittance to heaven is already guaranteed at this point. We, we've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, recognizing he died for our sins. So then it's all about our service and reward that we should receive as we appear before this judgment seat of Christ at that time. Again, the judgment, again, for believers only, stands in great contrast to the other judgment that shall occur, which is for the unbeliever. Yeah, they shall receive judgment as well for the sinner, the mock, the wicked. They will stand before God in what is called the white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment. It's a final judgment prior to the lost, unrepentant soul being cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, speaks of this upcoming day. John, in his vision, says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she too was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment. Make no mistake. Although the psalm seems to be worded quite unclear, there is a day of judgment coming for the ungodly. Lost, wicked people, ungodly men and women will face the great white throne judgment. It is not a day a believer will face, but is a day of destiny in which those who have not accepted Christ will certainly face upon one day. So as we begin to explain the scripture, notice the distinction really is clear about the judgment that shall occur, despite the words of what the psalmist is wording here. So if you're like me, you're thinking, well, why is he wording it this way? Well, I found one possible explanation going back to Charles Spurgeon's commentary. Spurgeon, rather interestingly, takes this statement, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, as indicative of the fact that the wicked will want to flee in that particular day that shall occur. His words are this. They will stand there to be judged, but not to be acquitted. Fear will lay hold upon them. They will not stand their ground. They will flee away. They will not stand there in their own defense, for they will bush and be covered with eternal contempt. So in Spurgeon's estimation, Psalmist words that in a way to think about the fact that there'll be that stand in judgment, but they will want to run away as that day begins to occur in fear of what shall happen. But either way you want to interpret it, notice this, as you go back to verses 4 through 6, that the sinners will have no place among the godly. Verse 5 says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 6 even adds, the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. When it says the way of the wicked and godly will shall perish. In summing up the verses, it's a sad reality of truth. That in the final days, the sinner will be summoned to the great white throne judgment to find that heaven and earth have fled away. Meaning that they will be forbidden from entering the new heaven and the new earth. They will never see it. Revelation 22, 14 and 15 says, Blessed, there's the word again, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You're thinking, I'm not one of those. I'm not a dog or sorcerer, sexually immoral, murder, idolater. But we still, if we've not accepted Christ, will still be judged as the same on that day. It's the ungodly that will face that great white, great white throne judgment, cast into the lake of fire. It's those who chose to live by their own free will, the ungodly life. And ungodly can be simply characterized by the fact they never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. When Ellie goes to school, wherever she goes, she's going to run into those kind of people. We every day run into those kind of people. 
but we should live a life of godliness so much so they see something different about us. Where they even may come to us and ask and just gives us the opportunity to explain the love of Jesus Christ and how he died for all of us. And perhaps they would leave the ungodly life and turn to the godly. As you consider all that, even the explanation or the psalm as it's written, we consider all this text, but it really should remind us of the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when he said this in verse Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few, few who find it. There's one more, if you're following the outline, point to make. And the concluding really message is this then. Do not be among the few who enter the narrow gate. Make the right choice. I find great satisfaction in knowing that Ellie has made that choice in her life. She received Christ. And as she was off to school, we not need to fret or worry the fact that she's made that choice in her life. And we could take joy in that. Maybe even the joy that she'll lead someone else to Christ as God uses her in whatever way. So the final point for any of us here today then is don't be among the few who enter the narrow gate. Make the right choice and make it today. All too often our tendency is to live life by the wide gate. And that gate is the world leads to destruction. It is the gate of the ungodly, the gate of the wicked. The psalmist says the way of the ungodly shall perish. As a Fitting conclusion, I'm going to borrow the words of Roger Ellsworth, who in his commentary says this. He asked the question, is there any wisdom in the psalm? We've been dissecting the psalm for 30 or 35 minutes. He says, is there any wisdom in the psalm? He says, indeed there is. There is no greater wisdom than ordering our lives according to the word of God. The central truth of that word is the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the major part of that ordering lies in receiving that word. He said, the Bible tells us that the day of separation is coming. John the Baptist had this to say regarding, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That will be the ungodly. So notice this then. The choice is yours to make. God gives us complete free will. No one waterboarding you, making you make a decision. The choice is yours. Listen to the words of the psalmist or the Lord in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Just simply rely on God. Choose to walk through the narrow gate. Leave behind the worldly enticement. Leave behind those devilish things. It might bring you some temporary satisfaction, but it is false. Live, choose the godly life. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord, and this message that we learn here today and how we can find the psalmist words applying to not only Ellie's life, but to all of our lives, Lord. 
So we pray today to the Lord to recognize the words, the wisdom written in the song. I pray for all of us to begin to live, if we have not been, but to live godly lives. Let us not be among the ungodly. We still want here today, Lord, let them change their way, completely change the behavior, their action, attitude, repent, and come to know you as Lord. So with all that, we thank you for this message and how it reveals to us the truth we need for this day. Again, pray for Ellie, Lord. We pray you'll use her mightily. Give her many blessings, Lord. It brings me great joy to know she's living among the godly. Bless her this day, Lord, and all the days she has. and Use her mightily in her future that you get the glory. Thank you again for this message this day, but thank you always for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.